Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show of a very special guest. His name is Dr. Jerry Bergman, and he has a very long bio and has written many books. And I'm going to go through them uh, just to start off the interview. Dr. Jerry Bergman has taught biology, genetics, chemistry, biochemistry, anthropology, geology, microbiology, and microbiology at Northwest State College in Archbold, Ohio for over 25 years. He has nine degrees including seven graduate degrees. He is a graduate of Medical College of Ohio, Wayne State University in Detroit, the University of Toledo, and Bowling Green State University. He has over 800 publications in 12 languages and 20 books and monographs. He has also taught at the Medical College of Ohio, where he is a research associate in the Department of Experimental Pathology. And he also taught six years at the University of Toledo and seven years at Bowling Green State University. And I'm going to go over some of his books. We're going to talk about one. The title of that book is The Dark Side of Charles Darwin. And I finished it this morning. It provided me many insights into Charles Darwin. I had all kinds of suspicions about evolution and, um, and Charles Darwin's work, but uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. But he's also published Persuaded by the Evidence in 2008, Hitler and the Nazi Darwinian Worldview, How the Nazi Eugenic Crusade for a Superior Race Caused the Greatest Holocaust in World History. That was 2012. The Darwin Effect of 2014, Silencing the Darwin Skeptics, The War Against Theists, 2016, Evolution's Blunders, Frauds, and Forgeries, 2017, Darwinism is the Doorway to Atheism, 2019, Darwinian Eugenics and the Holocaust, American Industrial Involvement, that was 2020, and then there was a three-part series that uh, I was unable to get because it was only in paperback, but I was, I was going to talk to Dr. Bergman about his third book in this series, which is the first book is Slaughter of the Distance, 2011, Censoring the Darwin Skeptics, 2018, and then Censoring the Darwin Skeptics, Volume 3, The Slaughter of the Distance Trilogy, How Belief in Evolution is Enforced by Expunging Dissidents, and that was just published February 4th, 2021. But again, uh, we're going to talk about a book he published back in 2011, the title of which is The Dark Side of Charles Darwin. So Dr. Jerry Berkman, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard anything other than this very long background uh, or CV that you have, can you talk about how your interest in Charles Darwin began and what led you to write this book, The Dark Side of Charles Darwin? Well, it began when I was quite a bit younger. I was in college and I became an atheist. But I had some doubts about atheism, uh, certain doubts, mainly the scholarly work done by atheists. And as I read more and more, especially in the biology area, I realized a lot of their claims were simply not true. And we assume that atheists like to claim, of course, that they're very well-read, and some are, and very intelligent, and some are, but they have a worldview which blinds them to the other side. In fact, my book, The Dark Side of Darwin, is the only book that I'm aware of, and I have about 120 books on Darwin and about Darwin, it's the only book that I'm aware of that looks at the other side of Charles Darwin. And there indeed is a wealth of information on the other side. It's not that books typically censor this information, it's there, but it may be one page, one paragraph, sometimes one chapter. So basically I put all this together and came up with the dark side of Darwin. And just recently, Science Magazine, the most prestigious magazine in the world, claims from an editorial that indeed Darwin was, and this is their words, he was a racist. And they quote his ideas where he basically said there were inferior races, which will eventually be go extinct because the superior races will win out. And he described this in quite a bit of detail. And he felt they should go extinct because if they are inferior, they should be naturally selected out 
of existence and therefore allowing these superior races to thrive. And so it's not a secret, it's, it's out there. But most and that's kind of like his subtitle of his famous work, right? On the origin of species is origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life, right? Right, yeah, that's his basic idea. And he has, of course, the second book, his book uh, on the uh, descent of man, he covers that in a lot more detail. But nonetheless, his ideas in this area are pretty clear. They're very clear, actually. Gotcha. And you, right, please continue. He is uh, now regarded by many authorities as a person who, number one, birthed the idea or at least strongly supported the idea that women were inferior because they have smaller brains. And secondly, he also was very important in pushing the idea that indeed some races were inferior. And he, he was widely accepted. His books sold huge numbers of copies. And he was very influential in the scientific world. And these ideas he had spread into the scientific world until in the, up to the 20s, I suppose, even the 30s, it was widely accepted indeed that women were inferior and also certain races were inferior. So he had an important role in producing the sexism and racism we see in our society. Right, and then it reached its horrible um, apex during World War II with eugenics. A lot of it came through the States as well, through the United States, some of his, his ideas suffused that. But you, can you talk about his, his approach really at the beginning to make sure that his ideas became predominant among the intellectual establishment in England? Well, his, he, he was a good skilled social seller. He sold his ideas very effectively. He would invite leading scientists to his home. He had a beautiful home, all the amenities of a wealthy man, which is what he was. And he would invite these people over for a couple of days, weekend and so on. And a lot of them appreciated as I would vacation. And therefore, he used this time to tactfully convince them of his ideas relative to his uh, view of the world. And he was quite successful because he was very tactful. He was very patient. And he would, when he got a con con conversion, he said, so-and-so, Dr. Hooker now is converted. He's on our side. So he was very much a proselytizer and very effective. And he was, of course, very influential because he wrote many other books in science as well. And therefore, he was well known in the scientific community and therefore very influential. And he, in his pushing his ideas, managed to end up convincing a lot of well-known, not everybody, I should mention, but a lot of well-known scientists uh, to his idea. And this time in the middle 1800s, this idea was very ripe. And so it was accepted by so many people because they were looking for another reason to explain the creation. And there's ideas before Darwin, but they weren't nearly as successful like Lamarckian biology. And Darwin was successful partially because of his own personality, his own persuasiveness, his own influence. And also he was not really a good writer, but he amassed a mammoth number of pages in his books, The Origin of Species, of course, and his other book uh, in the 1870s, his book uh, on the descent of man. And therefore he was very influential. Also, he first of all realized the Germans were going to be more receptive to his ideas than other people. And so he influenced a number of Germans to accept his ideas. His books were translated, I believe first in German and he eventually influenced a man by the name of Ernst Haeckel. And Ernst Haeckel of course changed the world 
by influencing German ideology toward this racist idea. And among those that Heckel influenced was, of course, Adolf Hitler. And Adolf Hitler, his ideas were basically mainline German science. And therefore, he and many of his followers didn't feel they were unusual. They were fully accepted by science. And so we can see where those ideas led. And that's what I document in my books. Now, the influence of Darwinism on Hitler, of course, is widely accepted and acknowledged. And there are a number of books which document that. My book, I try not to be, you know, not to have 6,000 footnotes. I try to summarize the ideas in my book on Hitler. Hitler's Darwinian worldview is a title. And therefore, it's readable. It's actually the most successful book I've ever written. It's readable, it flows, well-documented, but it doesn't go into excruciating detail. It covers the material pretty well. And especially someone who's interested in this topic, but doesn't want to spend the next three years reading a 900 and some page book. By the way, there are books that are about 900 pages, which document pretty much the same thing that I did, but you don't have to wade through all that to get the same ideas. Gotcha. So you see that Darwin really was trying to get his, almost like evangelize his ideas, but they weren't necessarily all his ideas. He, like you said, he was the most successful one. There is some issues about really, was he a, was he a plagiarist or where, and uh, about where he really got his ideas, even from his grandfather. Can you talk about the background of the origin of species? Well, his grandfather, of course, Erasmus Darwin, he did get some of his ideas through him. Also Lamarck, and there are many others who uh, influenced him in his ideas. So no, most of his ideas were not new. In fact, the idea that was new was natural selection, and that was widely doubted for about 50, 60 years. In fact, still today, there are problems with natural selection because natural selection can only select what exists. And the problem is not arrival, pardon me, the problem is not survival of the fittest, but the problem is the arrival of the fittest. And Darwin was never able to answer that. And with any really any explanation, he just didn't know. He thought there was variation, but the source of that, he had no idea. I think you write in your book, they actually tried to avoid the actual question of creation of what started it all, right? Right, they, because he had no explanation and he admitted he had no, he did say that there were two or three or four or five possibly created kinds, but that was kind of vague. And of course, the idea of mutations, which is now considered the source of variety, didn't come along until the 20s and 30s. And that now is the, the main source for genetic variety, according to evolutionary theory today. The problem with that is very clear that the vast majority of mutations are harmful or near neutral. Near neutral means that don't cause a problem individually, but they add up. It's kind of like health problems as you get older, Typically, people don't die of one, one thing. Their kidneys don't work as well. They have some liver problems. They have heart problems. They have Alzheimer's, or they're not quite as sharp as they used to be. And so death often in this country is a result of many small things that all add up. And likewise, near neutral mutations are small things which add up and actually cause ex species extinction or individual extinction of individual animals. So that, that would be survival of the fittest, but on the other hand, that doesn't explain the origin of genetic variety, which of course Darwin had no explanation for. And we don't today really either. We don't really have any explanations. In fact, one explanation, which is somewhat creative, is more and more popular, is 
It came from other planets, other systems, other solar systems. Sorry. Sorry, I hit the wrong button. I'm trying to oh. Please continue. But anyways, uh, now the idea, which is surprisingly becoming more accepted, is the origin of genetic variety did not come on the Earth, but it came from other planets, other places. And with the release of these UFO and related ideas by the government a few days ago, more and more people are looking at, well, the source of genetic variety is from some other place. Right, they call it panspermia, right? Right, and that just begs the question, well, how do you explain how it got there? You're just moving the problem somewhere else, which doesn't solve it. So, All right, so, so there's the problem of that. So there, there's really the beginning problem. Um, and it's also interesting. So the Darwinism demands like, they avoid that problem, but they also kind of, he had a philosophical impact in that if his, if his evolution is true, then there's, he basically promotes atheism, correct? Right, and that was his idea, although it was subtle. And he didn't come out and say, I'm trying to help everyone become an atheist. He was, you know, he was tactful. And, uh, but he recognized that's where it led. And it's pretty clear that that was his goal. In fact, he used the term murder one time. His natural theory, natural selection theory was like committing a murder. Well, of course he was trying to murder God. He was trying to come up for another explanation for the creation. And his explanation was of course, natural selection and basically evolution. And that replaced and has largely among scientists replaced the original explanation, which was God. And that's why you have about 98% of all scientists are what they call functional atheists. That means that they are not going to go around calling themselves an atheist, but they live their life as if there is no God. So this is what we call functional atheists. And that's how 98%, according to AAAS, the American Association of Advancement of Science survey found that that percent was about 98, 99%. Close it's to incredible. Yeah, it's an incredible, I mean, for his ideas, very successful. And also, like you write in your other books, the censor, censorship of other ideas. So Darwin's ideas become predominant and the other ones uh, die off or, or aren't as successful. So they've been very successful in taking the high ground, correct? Yeah, extremely successful. I think Darwin was around today, he'd be surprised at how successful his ideas are. But they are a lot of flaws, a lot of problems. And this is where the censorship comes in. When you bring out these flaws in academia, especially, they don't want you to talk about this. Just to, or we'll, we'll solve it, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out where the genetic variety comes from. But they don't want professors to influence students toward the direction away from evolution and toward obviously toward theism. And so that's why when you have these discussions with professors and others, you find they get pretty emotional. They get pretty upset. If you look at the literature very carefully, you find they get really, really nasty. And they get nasty because this is their worldview. This is the way they see the world. And therefore, when you attack that worldview, you're attacking the core of them. And therefore, they tend to get upset. It's, it's amazing to me how vicious they are against the creationists, how openly antagonistic they are to the point of absolute nastiness and this again is because this is the way they see the world and it's they, also there's kind of a financial element too because the if the darwinian view 
is predominant, then that they can get the research grants and all this and the teaching positions, correct? So there's oh. another, sorry. If they wanna disprove evolution and write a grant for that, it's not likely they'll get it. But if they wanna prove evolution in some way, fossil discoveries or whatever, then they're far more likely to get grants from National Geographic and the different places that do granting for uh, evolutionary research. And Darwin himself, he was, he was a unique character. I don't think I've ever heard anybody mention other than you that he was an invalid for 50 years of his life. Can you talk about his personality traits and, and what, why that should bring into question some of his research? Yeah, he had a long history. And this, there are actually whole books called CLUP wrote a book. He's a, me a medical doctor. He wrote a book, two books actually, discussing uh, Darwin's physical and mental problems. And he had a long list of physical and mental problems. In fact, some of the authorities of Darwin state that he was an invalid from the age 30 on up. But he was with it enough, I guess, to do his writing and influence other people. But oh, he had insomnia, he had uh, vertigo, he had uh, fainting spells, he vomited a lot, he had a vomitorium, I understand, in his study, so he could, didn't have to run up to the bathroom, he could just vomit in his study. He had constant indigestion, he estimated he would spend eight or nine hours on, on a sick bed. He didn't travel very far because of his health problems, but uh, Culp does a good job showing a long list of health problems he had, and there wasn't many that I'm aware of that he didn't have. So it's uh, fainting and fear and Many other detachment from his body, like pretty intense, uh, yeah, psychosomatic or real, real problems, right? And he went to 20 doctors, I think you mentioned, yeah, and he couldn't get any help. He he got some help from the water cure, but that was limited, and I think that was psychosomatic. The scholars, when they look at this, they look at two reasons one, he lost his daughter Anna when she was 10, and that was very traumatic for him, and that affected his antagonism toward the creator, towards God because if God was good and God was there, why would God take my daughter away? And the other thing is that he had a lot of guilt about what he was doing. And he realized he was murdering God. And his wife was a devout Christian, I understand her entire life, as were many of his friends. So what he was doing, he had a lot of doubts about. And therefore those doubts ended up in largely psychosomatic illness. And many feel that his illness was largely psychosomatic about his own doubts, but certainly doesn't bode well for his ideas and, and what he was trying to do. We could see people who have an evolutionary, Darwinistic, uh, atheistic worldview tend not to be, some of course are very happy, but they tend not to be the happiest people in the world. And yeah, so they're, talk to doctors, they'll, they'll tell you, you can always tell when a Christian is on his deathbed that they seem to, they deal with death so much better. And I talked to one doctor at University of Michigan who I got to know fairly well. And he says, you know, us medical doctors are less prone to accepting Darwinism as well as atheism because we can see from the experience of our patients that patients who have a strong Christian faith do so much better. And you see that if you've been in a hospital setting for any length of time. And therefore that influences us. It may not influence us to become active Christians, but we come to, to, uh, to accept the reality that indeed Christianity does have a tremendously positive influence upon our patients. Right, so and I'm, yeah, please continue. That's a good witness for, for the for Christianity. Right, and I mean, focusing on death, 
Darwin himself had a kind of, you mentioned it's an unusual characteristic of his personality is that he really was uh, hunted just for the sake of hunting, right? Yeah, and he had a strong fear of death as well, which is oh, not surprising. So he, but he used, I mean, I think that in his early life, they think that that might be the focus, I mean, of some kind of influence upon him is his his kind of fixation on the death of these animals that he was shooting all the time and hunting. And in his younger days too, he was also kind of a theist, right? So he had changed over time. Uh, yeah, he was not only a theist, but one of the piece, persons he admired most was William Paley, who originally had the idea of design. And we find evidence for God in design, you know, the Paley's watch idea. And so he was very impressed. He said he was very impressed with Paley in Oxford when he was studying. And therefore, uh, that had influence upon him. And that's why it's a question why he became an atheist. And that's a question scientists and Darwin scholars have tried to answer, but we don't know. But the death of his daughter, Anna, was felt to be at least a very good possibility as to why he was so negative toward God later on, angry at God, actually. And why do you think that people have this, like they have Darwin up on a pedestal and don't ask certain questions, like particularly about Wallace and, and plagiarism and things like that? Why do you, why do you think that the people don't want to look into the darker sides of, of Darwin? Well, he's a hero. We need heroes in science. In the church, we have heroes. We have St. Paul and Peter and so on. We have many heroes. And in science, they're looking for heroes. And Darwin is one of the heroes because he really did change the world. He had an enormous amount of influence on the world. And therefore, you know, I mean, and other heroes as well, but no one changed the world like Charles Darwin. You can look at others, like, of course, Einstein and Thomas Edison and many others who changed the world, but no one has changed the world as much as Darwin. It's said that we should date calendar from before Darwin, BD, and after Darwin, AD, instead of dating the, the chronology by Christ, the birth of Christ. And uh, they're honest in stating this. Now, Michael wow. Roos says over and over, Darwin was the greatest man that ever lived. Wow. You look at any other man, there's no one that comes close to Charles Darwin. And it really did change the worldview of so many people. You can see it on bumper stickers and the Darwin fish sign crawling, you know. So you see his influence is still around today. It's surprising, too, because he's been so much suspect scholarship and outright plagiarism. I mean, what's your opinion upon the dispute between Darwin and Wallace? And how do you see that influencing his research? Well, he had a hard time because he realized that Wallace came up with his main theory, which is natural selection uh, first. And uh, therefore, he tried to, to get around that and to basically claim the credit for that idea, not openly saying, yeah, I originated this idea. They had a meeting and in, Germany, in, in Great Britain, sorry, and this meeting basically he acknowledged the importance of Wallace. But really, Wallace's is not recognized today among many at all as important. He's, he's there, but Darwin clearly overshadows uh, Wallace. Now, Wallace did a lot of writing. He did a lot of work. But of course, Wallace was a theist as well. And Darwin had a hard time with that. Others had a hard time. They couldn't, you know, made it very clear, they couldn't accept the fact that Wallace indeed was a theist, that he believed God was behind this. And therefore, Darwin was closer to what many scientists want as a model and that is essentially an atheist, not a in-your-face atheist, but a man who lived his life as if there was no God. And Darwin did that. Of course, before Darwin, 
every scientist, as far as we know, was a theist. In fact, many were devout theists. And there might have been, you know, some out there, we don't really know about everybody's belief, but the vast majority we know were clearly uh, theists, like Michael Faraday. He was openly a theist, and he made it very clear what his orientation was. But since Darwin, of course, especially 1870, 1880, more and more scientists became Darwinists and atheists. And so therefore, Darwin had that influence toward the direction they really wanted to go, and that is towards uh, atheism. But Wallace didn't have that influence. I mean, he had a lot of good ideas and was a good writer. And, but of course, he didn't have the money or the social contact that Charles Darwin had. Now, Wallace was a poor, came from a poor family, had a struggle to make a living, and uh, he, his books didn't do all that well. They're not really well known even today. And therefore, uh, Darwin has the accolades that, that Wallace probably deserved, but he didn't get. And why do you, how do you think like Wallace, Darwin had what Huxley is his bulldog and he really found these people to evangelize his faith. I mean, can you talk about like how those people pushed the Darwinism further and, and what their uh, intent was and why they did it? People like Huxley. Well, they, they realized that Darwin himself was not going to get in a heated debate. He was not going to go out and aggressively push his ideas. He was going to stay behind the scenes keeping his work to himself to some degree, write his books, which did quite well, of course. But they realized, Huxley and others realized that they needed to have somebody who was aggressive out there pushing his ideas. And they basically felt if Darwin's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And therefore, we have Darwin's bulldog in, uh, in Great Britain. We have uh, Heckel in Germany that aggressively pushed Darwinian ideas. And I might add, very successfully, they were enormously successful in pushing his ideas because Heckel, of course, was one of the lead scientists in uh, Germany and uh, several scientists in Great Britain and America that were important, basically took the mantle and put it upon themselves to uh, push the idea aggressively of Darwinism in their books, their writings, and so on. And I mean, in the effect of that, on, just on society, sociology, politics just was immense on how, how decisions were made based upon the a theory, right? Something that may not be factual, the theory of evolution, right? Oh, it, it, enormously. And of course, yeah. eugenics in America was heavily pushed. And the basis of this, of course, was Darwin, Darwinism. And some didn't acknowledge that, but many did. And eugenics is a horribly embarrassing part of our past now. We're actually sterilizing thousands of people because we somehow judge them as inferior. And because they're inferior, they would have inferior offspring. And therefore, we must prevent them from having offspring. Therefore, a large number of girls were sterilized. Many of these, by the way, were not retarded in any way. They were not you know, mentally deficient. They were just not very well educated. In fact, one, the one woman whose case ended up at the Supreme Court, they said about her that, yes, she was not uh, well read, but boy, you get her in a bridge game and <laughs> you've got to be really good to defeat her. So she was very skilled in some areas, but she was not very skilled, of course, educationally because she didn't have much education, didn't have much of an advantage in that area. I think third grade or, or less education. And so right. she didn't have that. So, And that's kind of the dark side of, of evolution, really, is that oftentimes people are instituting this like they're 
gods like they're the the uh, engine of that evolution without maybe being the right thing i think oliver wendell holmes famously said three generations of idiots is enough or whatever so these guys really had that uh eugenics uh you know sterilized idea in the united states a lot of people don't know about that united states and sweden and russia and germany and of course the concern is so what we evolved so what doesn't make any difference well it does because eugenics eugenics was a reason now a good reason to accept and teach Darwinism. And therefore it has clear implications because we want better race of people. We want better people. We don't want people who are lacking in skills and less intelligent and retarded and so on. We want superior race of people. Therefore evolution is important because it tells us how we can get that superior race of people. Right. Well, yeah, it's been a very interesting conversation, really a terrific book, highly recommended. The title of the book is The Dark Side of Charles Darwin. Dr. Bergman, is there anything you would like to add? And what's your social media if people want to re reach out to you? Well, there are a number of places that I work with. Uh, of course, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble carry, and Goodreads and so on carry all my books. Walmart does online. You have to you know, carry them in the store. But there's a website which uh, I do a, about four articles a month, four or five articles a month called CREV, which is creation, of course, CREV.info. And on that website, I have probably, I don't know, four or 500 different articles, which I talk about these uh, things. And uh, again, bookstores carry them. Sure. So Amazon is probably, mm -hmm. and by the way, if you don't want to pay a new price, you can get on uh, adall.com. And that will give you used copies. And they probably have, I don't know, 600 different copies of my books at used prices. So you can save a little bit of money and, and buy them off there. But uh, or new is fine. You know, you can buy them off Amazon. But right. So that's add all ADDALL.com. And the other one was CRED.info. Is that correct? CREV. EV, sorry. EV.info. Gotcha. And I also saw your name. You were on creation.com. I just talked to Tasman Walker. So I know that your name's around, definitely around on different sites. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for the interview. Again, the title of the book is The Dark Side of Charles Darwin by Dr. Jerry Bergman. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me in. All right. Take care.